From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Highlights of important interviews from our daily discussion on race, education, and culture. Today, two best friends. They grew up together in the Maston District and both went on to make a huge impact in the world at large. Artist Leroy Johnson. When you paint something, the hardest part is the very beginning. Documentary filmmaker Tarabu Kirkland. There were hundreds of lynchings from cities all over the United States. Johnson's paintings are on display at the Birchfield Penny Art Center until the end of the month. Kirkland's documentary, 100 Years from Mississippi, is on several streaming services, telling the story of his mother, once Buffalo's oldest woman, who went back to relive racial trauma 100 years after her childhood. And as if that wasn't enough, the two of them worked together on integration at Canisius College in the late 60s. We were a group of less than a handful of African-American students. And Canisius wasn't set up to attract black students. The school was almost entirely white. Two outstanding artists with a common history, today in our Producers Picks program. I'm Angelie Preston. Thanks for joining us. We begin with Tarabu Kirkland. With Johnson's art on display, they have been speaking with and about each other as part of several panel discussions. Kirkland spoke with WBFO's Dave Debo in early February about Johnson's work and his own. Leroy Johnson is um, a longtime friend and colleague. We both uh, grew up as kids at the Masson Avenue Boys Club when we were uh, in our early teens. And uh, we wound up at Canisius College together in 1967. Um, we wound up at Canisius College together. We were a group of less than a handful of African-American students in the entire student body. Um, so when we looked at that situation, it was interesting because I lived in that community, which was entirely African-American. Yeah. But the school within that community was almost entirely probably 98%, you know, white. Sure. So um, our immediate question was, what's wrong with this picture? Uh, so we and uh, my, myself, Leroy, and I, and, and three other African-American students went into uh, Father Dembski's office, Father James Dembski, who was the president. President at the, at the time, sure. He had just started, actually, recently. And this was during the height of the black student movement in the 60s. And we went in his office unannounced, and locked the door and stayed in there for 68 hours and told them we weren't leaving until we got some demands met. The primary demand was that we wanted more African-American students recruited and enrolled in the college. And to his credit, he actually listened. And we formed shortly thereafter the African-American Society at Canisius College, which is still in existence. We began to personally recruit at local high schools. And from that handful of students in 1967, there were 30 in 1968, 60 in 1969. By the time we graduated, graduated there were close to 150. So we have a long relationship yeah. together of, you know, activism. And, and you went on to become this filmmaker. He's gone on to become a noted national artist. Internationally renowned artist. An attorney 
And, oh, yeah, by the way, the manager of his brother, Rick James, who was on tour with him for a while. That is correct. So, you know, there's just a lot of history there. And so when when his uh, exhibition was being scheduled, wow, it's a natural collaboration to bring the film in as part of the exhibition and reflect uh, the Black Lives Matter component of the film. To Robbo Kirkland talking about his friend, the artist Leroy Johnson, Kirkland's documentary, 100 Years from Mississippi, is a tale in itself. The race ride. People being buried to death, Lord help us. A tale told by his 111-year-old mother, Mamie Kirkland of Buffalo. I was seven years old. We had to leave Mississippi because they was going to lynch my father. The documentary begins in Ellisville, Mississippi in 1915 when her father came home and said they had to leave because a lynch mob was after him and his friend, John Hartfield. And she was never able to actually discern what the actual story was behind that, but the threat was real and evident, and his father, her father, and his friend fled uh, immediately around midnight. And after that, eventually. And then after that, later that morning, her mother packed up the five kids, They put everything in the two little suitcases that they owned, and they got on a train and fled Ellisville, Mississippi, to East St. Louis, Illinois. Uh, After they got to East St. Louis, Illinois in 1915, two years later, uh, the infamous East St. Louis race riots broke out. Hundreds of African Americans were killed. People were uh, uh, sailing across the uh, St. Louis River on rafts trying to get away from the violence. And she was a personal witness to that uh, racial terrorism. You are a filmmaker. You went back there to Mississippi with her after 100 years. Uh, Literally, it was 100 years later. We went back to Mississippi in 2015. And I had been hearing this story, Dave, for my entire life as a kid. Uh, Not all of the time, but Mm -hmm. every once in a while, the story would pop up at the dinner table. And it was one of those stories that you couldn't escape because it was so horrific. Um, As a kid, I was thinking, how could anybody do something like this? As the story goes, her father and his friend left Mississippi uh, under the cover of darkness. Her father's friend, John Hartfield, came back to Mississippi four years later in 1919. 1919 is a year called the Red Summer. This was a year of uh, just tremendous uh, violence across America against African Americans. There were something like hundreds of lynchings from cities all over the United States. John Harfield made the tragic decision to go back to Ellisville, mm-hmm. Mississippi. He was hunted in the woods for over a week, um, finally caught. Uh, he was mortally shot, kept alive in a doctor's office overnight so he could be publicly lynched the next day. Wow. Uh, the newspapers printed the story, John Hartfield to be lynched at 5 o'clock in Ellisville today on the front page of the Mississippi Daily News. And this is where the intersection of fact and folklore began to happen for right. me. Because in 2015, I discovered a report by the Equal Justice Initiative out of Montgomery, Alabama, outstanding uh, legal organization. And they published a report called Lynching in America. So a colleague of mine had emailed me the report, and I'm thumbing through the report, and on page 16, there was a front page article. About John Hartfield. About John Hartfield with that headline 
and I was in shock. In dramatic storytelling, they have a thing called the inciting incident. It's yeah. where the, the, the main character uh, is propelled, the event that propels the main character or characters on a journey that will occupy them for throughout the narrative. Right, right. For me, and this film project, that very much was the inciting incident because I realized this is not only a story, it's a real story, and there were 10,000 people who showed up to witness this lynching because they advertised it like it was a picnic. And so 100 years after she fled... You went back there with your mother because she is a witness to a whole lot of history here. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a casual trip, believe me. I bet not. I, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, literally had been broaching the subject with her for years. And um, when I would ask the question, was she interested in going back to Mississippi? The response was always dramatic and emphatic. And, and immediate, probably. No. And it went something like this. Hell no. I don't even want to see Mississippi on a map. And it was funny, but it was very real. And the more I asked and the more I got that response, the more I began to realize how much trauma was buried in that response. And, um, And I began to approach it a little bit differently when I asked her. You know, we know a lot more about trauma today than we did 100 years ago. Refugee communities, for instance, when they come to America, we now understand we have to deal with their uh, a psychic burden, their memory burden. There was none of that happening for African-Americans who were fleeing racial terrorism in the Deep South in the early 20th century. So um, I realized that, you know, this was a big, big decision for her uh, to decide to go back. But here's what happened. When we began to explore the subject and we were approached by the Equal Justice Initiative because they said to us, you know, she is the oldest lynching survivor that we have ever heard of, and we would like to talk to her. It gave me pause as a filmmaker, but I think it also gave her pause because she began to realize that her story was part of this larger narrative. It was a personal burden, personal trauma, but it was a part of a larger narrative. And obviously, sometimes talking about trauma can be helpful. Absolutely. I still am trying to, to visualize it. You and your 100-year-old mother went back to Mississippi. She was 107 at the time. And it was literally 100 years, 100 years since she had left in 1915. So we made the tri- trip back to Mississippi. And, uh, of course, she had a lot of trepidation about it because she didn't know what to expect. Right. But... Um, in in many ways, it was tremendously healing for her to be able to go back and to bear witness uh, to that history and to recognize that she was an authentic survivor and she was telling an authentic survivor's story. And it was important for her to share that story. As a filmmaker, you are obviously in the business of telling stories. Is the arc of her story a redemptive one? What is the end result other than her reliving memories and sharing them for the world? What is the end result of her pilgrimage? Well, you know, I think it is, um, it has a lot to do with forgiveness and compassion. Uh, She was an extremely spiritual person, um, an extremely loving person. Um, And I think as, as much trauma as she went through, because it was in addition to leaving Mississippi, 
fearing that her father and perhaps the family would be lynched, it was witness to the violence in East St. Louis, Illinois, where hundreds of African Americans were killed. Personal witness watching that. Um, and then two years later, they moved to uh, Canton, Ohio, um, in living in, in an all-white neighborhood, and they were visited by the Ku Klux Klan. And she vividly remembers mm. everyone hiding under the bed while they burned the cross on their lawn. And there were German neighbors who lived next door who had vowed to protect him. And they came armed and, you know, repelled right. the Klan members from actually burning the house down. So it was a series of, you know, memories and, and, and traumas from, you know, acts of racial terrorism and racial violence. I'm guessing here that while America knows there was violence in the South, this kind of visceral depiction, this kind of reality told by a real survivor is something we probably have not experienced the same way she obviously did. Yeah, and I think that's where the power of the story resides, because here's this little old lady. She's 107 years old, and she's talking about this history. And fortunately, her memory was as sharp at 107 as it was when she was a child. She remembered all of the details vividly, so she was able to share that. But what she was also able to impart was this level of uh, love and, and, and compassion. So it, it, is a, it is a redemptive story in, in that sense, and I think it, it also talks about um, you know, truth and reconciliation. Um, you know, when people talk about some of these issues, they think sometimes that we can jump over history and get to reconciliation without dealing with truth. But you can't have reconciliation until you have truth. And you have to confront it. Right, and you have to confront it. And so in her own personal way, this was her personal journey to confront that history and to become a, a voice of, you know, this is what we can do better to get to the other side of this. Did the telling of the story ultimately help her? I absolutely believe so, in a number of ways. I think it helped her. Here's the thing. Um, she was born in 1908. Mm. So you've got Theodore Roosevelt. You've got the First World War. You've got the racial violence of 1919, the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. You've got the Great Depression, the stock market crash, World War II, the atomic bomb. You know, there's just the civil rights movement. There's so, so much that she has lived through. And I, um, I think part of it for her was that she got to see the retrospective of her entire life. And part of it for us was how do we tell 100 years worth of history in an hour documentary? Is it something where the telling of the story um, is, um, I'm going to be blunt in the way I phrase it, instructive to white people? I believe so. I believe so. How? Well, because there's a lot of people that didn't even know these events happened. Um, we've screened in audiences in, in Miami, in Nashville, Washington, D.C., New York City, Indianapolis, Houston, Dallas, all through the South, Oklahoma State last week. And um, one of the things that is um, kind of a, a recurring refrain we hear is that I never knew about this. Mm -hmm. You know, the history that we're taught in schools is selective. I, 
I would say that I was taught, sure, that there was violence in the Deep South. Yes. Um, but the individual stories within that. Yes. The race riots in East St. Louis. Yes. Uh, the lynching in Ellisville, Mississippi. Yes. Those kind of vivid depictions yes. are completely different than the broad brush that says, oh, yes, there was violence against African-Americans. I received a phone call, Dave, from a, a minister, a, a white Baptist minister in Ellisville, Mississippi. He says, hello, Mr. Kirkland. Um, I'm a minister in Ellisville, and I just heard about this story, and I have lived in Ellisville my entire life, and I knew nothing about this, and we need to do something about this. We need to do something. The people of this city need to do something about this. One year later, I got another call from a woman who said, we saw your film, and we want to install a memorial for John Hartfield, which happened this past June, in June, mm. uh, Juneteenth celebration. They got the city council and the county to install this marker in memory of John Hartfield. If nothing else... It uh, reminds the people of that community that this is something that they should never revisit again. So I think in that sense, it's really instructive and really powerful. As you've screened this across the country, what have you learned? Tell me about some of those experiences that you've had with people who view it for the first time. Well, um, one of the responses that I mentioned before is that I knew nothing about this. The other is, wow, um... What do we do now? How do, how do we deal with this? Um, and some of those places where we have screened the film have now passed anti-history legislation that makes it impossible to teach or even talk about some of this racial history. In certain spots, spots of the country right now, critical race theory is not allowed in schools. That is correct. That is correct. And so um, when we screened in Oklahoma, the professor said, yeah, well, this, is, this is a very red state. And so this discussion is delicate in this state because people don't want to talk about it. But I want to screen this film anyway to my students because I think it's important for them to know. So you know, the idea that if we teach a, a truer history of our country, then our children will grow up not loving their country, for me, is, is a ridiculous notion. I think, in fact, if we teach a truer history of our country, our children will want to grow up and do something about it to redress those wrongs. So the, the thinking is completely illogical to me. Uh, so I hear students all over the country saying, well, I'm so glad you came and talked to us about this. I learned so much that I didn't know. I have a completely different understanding of why this is so important for us to talk about. Tarabo Kirkland is here, a Buffalo-born filmmaker, director of 100 Years from Mississippi. There's a screening tonight of that documentary at Canisius College, free to the public, 6 o'clock, in the Regis Room at the Winter Center on campus. He's also part of a panel discussion this Saturday at the Birchfield Penny Art Center with childhood friend and artist Leroy Johnson that look at the intersection between the civil rights themes in his documentary and the Black Lives Matter connection to Johnson's work. And as you know, uh, Buffalo was um, home of a, a serious uh, racial violent incident 
And as we reflected on it, my mother lived blocks from the top store. It was the top store that I would go shop for her when I came back in town. Mm-hmm. When she was moving around the city, it was the store that she went to shop um, herself. Um, and so when that event happened, I was on the West Coast, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, I was just waiting for the phone calls to happen, dreading for that first call. First call came from one of my sisters who lives only blocks away, and she said that her friend's nephew was in the store shopping, and he didn't make it out. And then my other sister called, and she says, you know, I used to joke with the security guard all of the time. He obviously didn't make it out as well. And as I began to reflect on that, Dave, that one of the things that came up to me was that when she left Mississippi in 1915, it was the same year that... Uh, D.W. Griffith released his film, Birth of a Nation, Mm. a film which was um, celebrated. He was even feted at the White House by Woodrow Wilson. Uh, The the story was a story that really glorified the Ku Klux Klan and uh, vilified black people as these, you know, deranged uh, sexual uh, predators. Predators, yeah. It became the the racist bullhorn that... um, uh, fuel the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. And then what happened? 1917 was the East St. Louis race riots. 1919 was a severe violence of the Red Summer. 1921 was the Tulsa massacres. Um, so there was a correlation to that. And so um, my uh, 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 analogy was that the, the what was written on the barrel of the gun by Peyton Gendron mm-hmm was the same metaphor. It was the same racist bullhorn. And so we have a relationship. It was 100 years ago, but it's not really yesterday. It's today. Past is prologue. Correct. Connect that to Leroy's art. So he's, um, he's an incredible artist that has, um, he calls his work electric primitive. But there's all of these images that are ancestral, they're African, um, they're representative of um, really strong, powerful identity symbols, and it's also political um, and reinforces some of the um, just just important, you know, movements of his life, really. One of them is as an activist, um, and, you know, seeing the, the resurgence of, you know, black, you know, political voice within the Black Lives Matter movement. And he developed works of art. He's extremely prodigious, mm. extremely prodigious art. When you go see the exhibit, you'll see it's just a, a magnificent um, spread of, of work over, over the years that, um, you know, talks about uh, black lives and, 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 and reaffirming um, this this notion that there is um, a planet that we all live on. There's you know, there's a there's a book called Chaos that was written by Isabel Wilkerson. Actually, she wrote two books. Uh, the first one was called The Warmth of Other Suns, which is a beautiful uh, retrospective of three individuals who migrated from the South during the Great Migration. It's really my mother's story. She could have okay. been one of the characters in the book. Um, and then she recently released a book called Cass about the American racial system. In the introduction, she has a, a metaphor. She talks about living in an old house. 
and how they have this forensic, these have these forensic um, uh, 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 scientists who can go in and you know look beyond the the the, the, the ceiling and see the studs and see where the cracks in the structure are, where the, where the leaks have happened, where the water has come in. I get the metaphor the already, yeah. Um, and, and, and it relates to the fact that we are all living in this old house. And this old house has structural problems. So we can say personally, well, I wasn't here when slavery happened. My parents didn't have anything to do with it. They had nothing to do with me. But the reality is, we all live in this old house. And if we don't take care of this old house, then those things that we can't see beyond the walls will begin to affect us structurally. It could collapse. So we all have a responsibility to that. So that's the tie-in for me. At the time of her death, Mamie Kirkland was Buffalo's oldest citizen at 111 years old. The documentary is a way of remembering her struggles in ways that aren't always commemorated in America. Germany, for instance, you know, you can't, you can't walk very far around Germany without seeing some remembrance to the Holocaust. You know, it, it's, it's constantly a reminder there that this is a history that we should not revisit. Of course, it's not perfect. But when you look at racial history in this country, it's people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to revisit that. And that goes back to the point I was mentioning earlier, that you can't re- get to reconciliation until you have truth. You right. can't get the truth until you have dialogue about it. So that's the tie-in. His mother, Mamie Kirkland, died in Buffalo in December 2019 at 111 years old. Did you ever have any anger towards white people? Never. What good would that do me? You're a person, and I'm a person. I left Mississippi 100 years ago. I left there a frightened little girl. But you know what? I'm not frightened anymore. We do a lot of things great in America. We do success great, we do victory great, but we don't do shame great. We don't own up to the things about which we should be shameful, and I think that leaves us vulnerable for replicating those things. Documentary filmmaker Tarabu Kirkland. This is Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks, with highlights from our daily program, lifting up voices in the community after the Topps Market Massacre on 514. Kirkland's childhood friend, Leroy Johnson, is an attorney a member of the Buffalo Music Hall of Fame for his work as his brother Rick James' manager, and in the years since has gained an international reputation for his paintings. His retrospective, Roy in Living Color, is at the Birchfield Penny Art Center until March 28th. He spoke with Jay Moran shortly after the exhibit opened. My art is about, about me and about my life and about how I interpret life and uh, what experiences I've had in life. But a lot of it is very spontaneous and is, and is based on dreams and um, things that come to me at, at night and I'll wake up and I'll do a sketch real quick and um, the piece comes to me almost completely but in colors and design and that. The rest of it is easy trying to um, replicate what I've, I've um, dreamed. You know, it, it's uh, 
when you when you when you paint something, uh, the hardest part is um, the very beginning of prepping. Prepping will take away some of the energy, so you want to prep the canvas pretty quickly, and or sometimes have a. a a canvas ready but the problem there is that my ideas come in shapes and forms that have to fit in the shape and form in which uh, I originally think of it as so you know you you won't have that canvas ready so you you have to create a quick canvas and prep it uh, pretty quickly you know and uh, it's interesting to because your work is so impressively colorful and when you were talking about it being in your dream, do you, do you dream in color, or is that something that comes later on in, oh, the, in no, the process? No, I dream in color. I, really? Uh, I thought it doesn't everybody. <laughs> you know, I, I, I dream in color. <laughs> I don't uh, think so. I don't think everybody does, actually. No. And sometimes it just happens that uh, if I don't sketch it, then it just continues to repeat itself in different <laughs> dreams and until it says, look, do this dream. Get, get it out get of it me. Get it out of me. <laughs> get it out of me and get the whole painting out. So it's all based on, on energy and um, uh I'll start the painting, and then in the middle of the painting, I might have another energy. So, you know, you have to get a lot of that painting done because if something else comes up, I want to move on to that other thing. And then sometimes I'll get back to that painting and uh, finish that one up, or it may be it may be finished. You say that this comes from you. The, the art is about you. So these dreams that you have, are they influenced by things that happened to you during the day or things that you've seen in the news or Everything. What? There's no specific thing. Um, and I always give some uh, this example that uh, I was in a car looking at uh, everything at Elmwood and, and from the car, and I looked in the window and I said, oh boy, that's a beautiful painting in the window. And uh, so let me get out of the car and look at it. And I walked up to it and it was just a reflection of light on a piece of glass. And it was so vivid to me that I um, I sketched that quickly, and um, I did about three paintings of it, you know. But it wasn't there. It was something that I I thought was there, so I created it. Living in Buffalo, does Buffalo? I mean, these are your stories. These images are your stories. Yes. But does Buffalo? I mean, if you if you took me to one of your paintings, you, you could say this oh, yes. reflects oh, yes. on Buffalo. Uh, there's, uh, there's some imagery um, like. Um, Confusion on Elmwood, part of Elmwood with all the colorful houses. And uh, I have these cats and these uh, what I call bullaces, which is an imaginary image of of mine running up the street, you know. But, uh, you know, Elmwood gets uh, a little crazy sometimes, at least it used to, you know. I I think it still has its moments. And so that imagery and uh, the imagery growing up um, uh, in the projects and that kind of thing, uh, I often place that in, in paintings. You're an East High School graduate here in the city of No, Buffalo? I attended East High School. You didn't graduate from there? No, I went to three high schools. Three? Yes, I, I wanted I wanted a better education, so I I thought I needed to go to three high schools. <laughs> <laughs> I started Hutch Tech, I went to East, and then uh, I graduated from Lafayette. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Sorry. So, but that being stated, so then you have a, you know, you were well-versed in Buffalo public schools. Oh, yes. That's oh, for yes. sure. Oh, yes. Were your artistic beginnings during well, your school days? Well, actually, my artistic beginnings goes back way before high school. As a young ch- kid, I did a lot of sketching. I always did a lot of sketching, and uh, uh, then it became a time where that's all I really could do. I had an accident, and I was bedridden for about um, well four years. I was out of school, so during that time, I did a lot of um, a lot of sketching, and I think that developed a perspective for me. When I finally was able to do something, it was um, my uh, seventh and eighth grade. 
I was able to go to school, and then I went to Hutch Tech. Okay. And I went to Hutch Tech originally for commercial art and design, and that was my first basic course in art. So that's where it started. Okay, so some, so there was a teacher back then who uh, kind of helped you yeah, get yeah. this rolling. Anybody yeah. specifically, though, that influenced you that you say, boy, I would not be here doing this type of work right now in my own exhibit at uh, the Birchfield Penny if this person inside Buffalo didn't help me along. Well, I wish I remembered his name, but I, I was in the bed at uh, 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 emergency hospital, mm -hmm. and there was a guy who was in the bed across uh, from me, and uh, funny guy, but he was always in a, in a wheelchair and that, and he saw that I was doing a little sketch, and he, he uh, bought me a book and some pencils and that, and said, do some work for me and, and keep this book. And, I, and, and that was really the beginning of formalized training because now I had a book and, you know, I didn't have scraps of paper and I still do art on anything. I do it on tissue or, or whatever's there on the back of um, matchbooks. I did that and on the back of, um, you know, I used to do on my, uh, my card. I had these art things that, no, you can't have this one. <laughs> I, got my, I, I got my art piece on it. I, and, and then when cell phones finally came along, you know, it made it real cool. Cooler part is to have the original. And so I would take pictures of the uh, these sketches, and I still do take pictures of the sketches because now you can, you can put the colors on real quickly and that kind of thing. And it's interesting, as you were saying that, what made me, sometimes we call people who draw artists. And I don't necessarily want to denigrate, but what about for you in terms of when meaning became a larger part of what you were doing. It was less about technique. You had to have the technique to, to produce these pieces, but where it became more about something that was a little bit more expansive. Well, I, I don't think I ever got to that point where um, technique was ever a focus of mine. I think uh, doing was always a focus. And as you do more and more and, you know, you, you kind of examine what you're doing a little bit, uh, and each time you, you you get a little bit better, but um, my art has always been an experiment. I mean, each page I can't remember what I did the piece before. Okay. So I you know I just start and um, I know that I have to prep and and then I also know that I have to um, compose. Uh, but I do all of that naturally now. You know, it's a uh, composition is like a, a photographer's eye, and you and you you, you know. I look at the canvas like a photographer, and I say that this has to be a certain way. Uh, this is my focal point, and um, it just happens that that fits in the form of which maybe they're teaching in art school. process would have been easier maybe if I went to school, but right. at the same time, I think it would have lost a lot of um, activity and ind individuality. You know, we've had people here, and we've talked about this art in Buffalo, the artistic abilities and talent that's in Buffalo, to the point where we've had people say, the art in Buffalo emerges is from the east side of Buffalo. I mean, I've had that statement. This is where the art is in Buffalo, whether it's music or paintings or, or whatever the case may be, visual art. I'm wondering from your perspective, as somebody, again, grew up here, but is that, that talent, that artistic talent that is in the east side of Buffalo, is it being developed enough? Is, are there enough opportunities for these young people to express that? Well, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of murals going on, a lot of projects going on that um, uh, uh, I think Buffalo is worthy to be on a national scene. Uh, I compare Buffalo somewhat to New York in the 
70s and the 80s mm. when the whole pop art and things were blossoming with uh, Warhol and Peter Max and Basquiat and those guys. And there's a lot of that going on, not only on the east side, but throughout. There's some interesting museums and galleries and uh, just a lot of projects going on with a lot of artists. And the whole thing is is just boiling and, and just simmering, so just ready to explode. Uh, I think it, also that um, the city as a whole is recognizing power to east side in terms of what they're doing with art. And um, I think there has to be some kind of cohesion that brings everything together with the east side and the rest because there's just this whole environment is strong, not just the east side, but the west side. and Just the whole art community here right now seems to be just just blooming and just have so many talented artists. So, you know, I've been all around the world. I've seen ta- talented right. artists, and, and, and we're just as good as anywhere. You know, the question is, where do they want to take it? Do they, you know, I, I chose to do more international work, and um, I, I think that that's the route that I chose. I don't know what their route is going to be, but um, what they've done here is very strong. To hear you talk about it, it sounds like we're on the verge of something very significant here. We are. We have some very, very strong artists. Um, uh, for me, it was a matter of just knowing where I stood Okay. in the art world. And the only way that you can find that out is going places and doing things. So, uh, I mean, here you can stand out. There's no problem with that. I mean, um, but there's a lot of competition here. So you're going, you know, you're going to have to stand out some kind of way. Right. So um, I, I think that um, I think once they build that confidence that they are as good as anybody anywhere, because they come from a history of strong artists like Bill Cooper and um, Wilhelmina Godfrey and, and I think that legacy has helped uh, black artists to in, in the inner city to, to. Are there obstacles though for these young artists in Buffalo? The only obstacle is yourself. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the only obstacle I've ever found. Um, being confident in yourself is is most important because I think everybody needs an individual style. We don't need to repeat somebody else's right. style because you just fall in line with a thousand other people, and that. That sometimes I see might be an issue here as it is in other places. That Where'd you get your confidence from? Uh, from being told, uh, I didn't like this, I don't like that, and then finally just saying to myself that I really don't care what you don't like or whatever. <laughs> I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm, I feel good about what I'm doing. Can you remember anything that uh, of the bad things that maybe it did, it, it proved to be a available piece of advice or you would rather not just not focus on it. Well, I, I, the, the one that I really um, think of most is um, <clears throat> I was at the London Biennale, and um, uh, which is a very important event. And um, there's a woman there, and she was criticizing uh, the work to me, half drunk. She was like, uh, the head is too small. You disrespect women and this and that and the other. And I was like, oh, you know, first I was very nice to her, and I was like um, – well, thank you for your opinion, but um, um, uh, uh, my mother was the most important person in my life, and um, I have the ultimate respect. And actually, what you think about this painting, what I think, are two different things. I think that this talks about the energy and the power of a woman, and you're seeing something different. So I, I asked her. I said, "Would you would you talk to would you tell Picasso that that head should be over here?" And she looked at me. I said, that's called um, um, 
artistic uh, freedom to do what I want. But the problem with that whole scenario was I didn't know that the jurists for the show were standing there listening. Oh. And I didn't find that out till the conversation was over. And uh, they had these tags on it said the jurors from the European conference and that. And I said to myself, oh, my God, this, this is a nightmare. And so one of the artists next to me, she's a, the woman doesn't know a thing that she's talking about. Just excuse that. Well, I won the two highest artists there. Wow. In spite of that. So that's just a lesson that you learn that you have to be confident in what you do and, then, and accept the criticism. I'm not going to change the head just because. <laughs> I said, in this, in this, we don't change the heads here. You know, we, just, you know, we just change the suits. <laughs> and you have to laugh about it, you know, because you have to be secure regardless of what. And sometimes I say to myself, you know, somebody finishes last, you know, one day it's going to be me. Talking with uh, Leroy Johnson, there's so much to talk about with you. I, I, I love talking about art, and maybe we can circle back to some elements of it as well. But there's more to your career. First and foremost, you are an attorney. You're not just not just an artist. Or you, I mean, you're doing art. We talked about before. You're still doing law full time. You're doing art full time. Yes. I'm not even going to ask you how you do that. So I'll just talk about. So uh, talk about is how did you get into law? What 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 kind of law have you been practicing through these years? Well, uh, I had a number of family members who were um, attorneys, um, and uh, I used to watch Perry Mason a lot. Of this <laughs> but it was really my cousins who were both uh, lawyers, and and when I was about nine or ten, you know, they were um, they opened up a law firm in Cleveland, and that was very important to me that uh, they wanted me to be there, and, and I was there and saw the energy around that, and. Um, then you mix in Perry Mason with that, and, you know, because and during those four years, all I saw was one episode of Perry Mason at a time, you know. And, right. And um, no binge watching back then. But yeah. Actually, the um, the United States government army made a decision for me. Uh, when I graduated from college, I really wanted to take some time off and go to um, to uh, Europe and travel around. And so <clears throat> I went to Washington. I was staying in Washington for a while. And I uh, got a letter that said if, if uh, you have one of two choices, either you go to school or you go to Vietnam. Mm. And you got two weeks to decide. So I had uh, applied to law schools, and I was in D.C., and so I ran into the dean of admissions at Georgetown, and I had already been accepted, although I had not applied. I had, uh, was going to NYU. And the dean of admissions asked me, could he take my application to Georgetown with him because he was going to go over to Georgetown. That opportunity came, and I just went to Georgetown. I said, you know, I'm not going to Vietnam right now. <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, that's kind of how, like, you know, if that didn't happen, I don't know if I, if I ever would have gone to law school. And I couldn't help but think when you were describing your art process of waking up from that dream sketching it immediately, preparing the canvases, that part of that discipline is part of the discipline that seems to come out of being a, an attorney. Same discipline. Um, uh, you have to use the same creative, but uh, you, you have to use the, um, the real process, the um, uh, what are the facts, you know, and how does the facts apply to the law, and, uh, 
if you have to be creative, sometimes you know you, <laughs> you get the case where you say that there's no way that this case that this case is going to turn out, and then you think about it and think about it and think about it, and then you come up with something crazy, and it works. Wow! Wow! Yeah, I might have to use you as an attorney. It sounds like yeah. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that off air. Uh, I have to talk about um, a couple of other elements here. Uh, you uh, graduated from uh, Canisius College in 1971, and uh, your time at college, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you and uh, a classmate and maybe others were involved in um, a fairly significant, how do I say, I guess what it was, it was a sit-in almost of, of sorts uh, at Canisius with uh, the well, then president? It was, yeah, it was more, more than just the sit-in. It was a process of... Uh, changing things at the school. The sit-in was part of it. But yep. um, uh, you're, of course, mentioning um, uh, Tarabu Kirkland, who was um, produced and directed the 100 Years from Mississippi. Right. We had him on the show last week, as a yeah, matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, uh, Tarabu, myself, and Bob Maloney, Frank Barbie, and Gene Robeson, a couple others. Gene Robeson, the basketball player? Yeah. yeah. We all um, uh, we were of the minority class there was just uh, very few of us at Canisius and our thinking during the time was uh, uh, that here we are in this uh, black neighborhood in almost uh, a perceived uh, lily white school and there's nothing here for us and it just doesn't make sense so we sat in um, and Father Dembski met with us and was very receptive to everything. And then, in fact, he said, if you could put whatever you bring to me, uh, I will do it, work on it. Well, you know, first we demanded 100 students. We ended up with more at the end, but uh, 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 we went out, and because of time restrictions and that, we were able to bring in 30 students in the next class. We were able to um, set up uh, the Martin Luther King Scholarship Program, also, we set up uh, tutorial programs, and um, uh, we brought in, uh, I think, a, well, at least one black professor. Because one thing that he did have, they had Dr. Jesse Nash, who was there at Canisius. Oh. So he was very helpful in terms of um, uh, forming the Canisius Afro and and conceptualizing a lot of things. Uh, he, along with Dr. Uh, Walter Sherrill and um, uh, Ed Zimmerman. So... I mean, we uh, we did something that was going on around the country, but it was kind of spontaneous. Really? Yeah, it was. Um, uh, and I think we were ahead of the curve because we were one of the first to form that kind of organization. And then once we formed it, we um, we went around the country and started talking to various other schools about forming the same kind of organization and, and what it should look like. But uh, we could say what our school should look like, but it's up to them to say what their school should look like. So, you know, our mission was to, to make some changes. And we really didn't think a whole lot about the, it, uh, it going to be a legacy or anything like that. But then, you know, it just turned out to be something very special. And uh, it's almost like art, spontaneous. and, and <laughs> You keep coming yeah. back to that. Yeah, yeah that's was, interesting. Uh, yeah, and we didn't know how it would work out, but you just just do it, you know. It, um, I, I maybe just answered the question that I was going to say lessons or a lesson that you took from from that event in your life and that's a significant event i mean the, the, like you said that that type of thing was happening at different colleges across the country but until that time there was none of that right i mean i think there was a certain amount of um courage and and um and 
some some anger, um, some uh, willingness to uh, to put ourselves out there in the front, in the forefront of it. Um, but a lot of it was that we just didn't know. We didn't know how Dembski was going to run. Father Dembski, excuse right. me, because right. he was a, a great person. Certainly. Um, <clears throat> We didn't know how he was going to react. It was, it was funny because we 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 uh, it, it, the sit in we sat in and we were going to kind of block the office until he did something and he comes up instead of coming out he comes <laughs> up and what are you guys doing? It's like sitting in, having to sit in. He says, "Well, what do you want?" And he says, um, "Listen, we start explaining." He said, no, "Well, come into the office, come into the boardroom." So we go into the boardroom and uh, he pulls out cigars and some whiskey. He says, "You guys want to be big time? You want to talk like executives?" He says, "Here you go. Here's some." You know, I was like, "You know, I don't smoke, and, and I'm certainly not going to start drinking here in front of you." <laughs> you know, it's like, so it, that, that I kind of remember that vividly, and it, it um, and and then we started, uh, but we had planned pretty good about uh, uh, what we wanted, and so we were able to talk about what we wanted. So the, the question is, how do we do it? And Canisius wasn't set up to, uh, to attract black students. So we actually went out individually to schools and brought in students that we knew that could, could do the work at Canisius. So it, uh, over the summer, we spent uh, time going to various high schools, calling guys who I grew up with um, and who uh, Tarabo grew up with. And um, um, he was Tarabo, I, and Gene. We were only three from Buffalo. And then um, actually the upperclassman was Frank Barbie. So each one of us went out and started uh, collecting different students. And, and Bob Maloney and, and Ernie Daniels, they were both from uh, from D.C. So they attracted some students from D.C. So we ended up with 30 and that was a pretty good number. Um, we could have brought in a hundred, but we couldn't do the work that much work. Right. And so they actually set up a scholarship program and um, you know orientation and all those things. It was uh, we worked hard. That uh, uh, that was after our, during the end of our freshman year uh, and over the summer into our sophomore year. Wow. That's all. That is a lot of work for college students, yes. uh, for sure. Um, Canisius has, has changed, of course. They have a black president now. Uh, if I know my numbers, I think maybe about a third of their incoming class are uh, our populations of color, uh, students of color. Um, but what was the response on campus? That's the response from Father Dembski. What about from fellow students? Well, I don't think all the students were receptive, but some of them were. I mean, the ones I knew were on our side with basketball sure. players and athletes, uh, Tony Massiello and, and Terry and those Terry guys. Connors, they, yeah. they were um, uh, they were there, uh, very supportive, and uh, so we know that the sports guys were, uh, and most of the students. There was only I, I, you know I only had a few encounters with uh, uh, with students that were negative, and um, I had a few negative responses from some of the professors. Wow. Oh, yeah. We're talking with uh, Leroy Johnson on uh, Buffalo What's Next, uh, coming down to our, our final segment of, of the program with him. And uh, uh, we're talking about a lot of different things. Most certainly want to continue to mention that his, uh, the Leroy Living, Living in Color uh, retrospective is on at the Birchfield Penny through March 26th. I can't let you go without talking about your brother. 
They never do. <laughs> Nobody does. Nobody I mean, does. I can imagine. Your brother, Rick James. Yeah. So we have this artist, attorney, and this amazing uh, musical figure growing up in the same household. What was it like with uh, when you guys were young? Well, Rick was always a little different, you know. I mean, and when I say different, it's just that uh, um, Rick explored everything, and um, <clears throat> he was his own person. And you just, uh, you know, he he just seemed to be ahead of everything. Uh, so he was a little different, and you know, following behind him for the most part because we we're basically the same age, and we're best of friends until. Um, until the end. Hmm. Um, he was just a very creative person. And, you you know, it, it's hard to put your fingers down on him. Um, but there was a lot to learn from creative people in terms of what they, they do and how they looked at things. And uh, one of the things is that uh, nobody believed in him, but he believed in himself. And that goes back to yourself with art. You have to believe in yourself and um, I kind of like do the same thing when I, I teach them and so on and say, ah, this is terrible. I said, no, this is, this is not. This is you. This is great. And then I'll, I'll Google it and show them that there are artists who are very successful doing just what you're doing right now, the so-called terrible work that you think. I said, so Rick had uh, an overwhelming amount of confidence that um, in anything that he did, he, he believed he could do anything. So, yeah, too much confidence. <laughs> you know? I guess we, that, that is an issue. So uh, that's interesting that you, when you, you reframed it like that, that, that it wasn't just his musical ability and the idea that he could be this incredible performer. It was just whatever he took on, he did it with confidence. Yes. Where did that come from? Because obviously that's something that was bestowed upon you as well. I don't know. I just think that uh, I guess in our family uh, and my mother and um, – her family and her grandmother and her grandmother's grandmother uh, just pushed uh, confidence and creativity and and the world belongs to you and don't let any, anybody tell you. It says, you are you. There's no world without you. There's no stars out there except for the stars that you make. But you're the star in your world. So we always believed in that. So, you know, the question is, do you get the most out of yourself? It's a great question. Uh, I'm not going to get into my answer right now. I'll yeah. save that for later. Uh, so I'm not going to ask you the question about hope for Buffalo. I'm going to ask you then the question that we like to ask, what does Buffalo need? What does it need? We can't, we're not going to be able to change the weather. So uh, we know that's going to be a, uh, a, a given. What does Buffalo, Buffalo need? What would you say? Buffalo needs more creative people, and it needs um, – people who can understand what Buffalo represents and how to expand on that more and want to do that. Uh, Buffalo has a lot of people here with money, can do things, but they're very content with what they have. They don't want to change things. They don't want to uh, continue to make Buffalo the city that it can be. I think that from traveling around and you see what's here, uh, little changes, I think, like, for instance— if they ever recognize the real waterfront, that kind of thing, you know. Um, and someone had the um, the guts to say, 
let's do something really creative with the waterfront. What's what's there is nice. Right. It's a nice beginning. But that's not the waterfront. That really isn't. So, um, I mean, those are things personally that I see. Right. That I see that could change. I think that if um, – and it might sound crazy. I said I, we have a perfect position on Lake Erie that people would really want to come to. We could create a Niagara on the lake right there, right here in Buffalo. Um and I think if we um, we had a better relationship, we have a governor now from Buffalo, right? And we should e- exploit that to, to make the changes in Buffalo that we really need. You know, we're getting ready to take off here in terms of culture with the opening of New Albright. We're going to um, we're going to see that that's going to bring international attention to the Albright. It's going to bring people in from around the world just for that. So you know, they're going to need more than just that. You got the Birchfield, you got the Albright, you you have that whole museum section, you know. So, but what else? I think we have to start thinking bigger while we have the opportunity. You're not going to have the governor from Buffalo for a long time, but you can create a lot of things. And I know this because I was in Washington um, when the, um, the Pennsylvania Avenue development took place. I was also involved in a. In Baltimore's development from the outside, we consulted with them, but oh. I was part of um, the team that worked on the Pennsylvania Avenue development, and we had resistance uh, to that from people. But these are things that are going to happen. Things are going to happen in Buffalo in spite of what the, the people here who don't want change. It's going to happen. It's just a question of when. Artist Leroy Johnson, and before that, filmmaker Tarabu Kirkland. The two grew up together in Buffalo's Maston District. Buffalo What's Next is a weekday podcast. Subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts or just listen live each morning at 10 and each weeknight at 9. You can also listen on demand at the NPR One and WBFO apps or online at WBFO.org. I'm Angeli Preston. Thanks for listening. This is WBFO News History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the listening area from the week of March 6th through March 12th. I'm your host and WBFO News Program Director, Tom Barich. March 6th, 1921, headline in the New York Times, quote, hundreds of pigs run wild in the streets of Buffalo, unquote. While very few details remain about the great pig riot of 1921, it appeared to be a livestock protest that backfired. While no one was injured in the two-day pig spree, many of the pigs did go unaccounted for. March 9, 1849, 13th President of the U.S. and resident of East Aurora, New York, Millard Fillmore, is officially inaugurated as Vice President of the U.S. under Zachary Taylor, who would pass away from an unknown stomach ailment a little more than a year into his presidency, paving the way for one President Fillmore. March 10, 1955, there's a celebrity sighting in Western New York. It seems that none other than the great one himself, Jackie Gleason, is spotted eating a few hot dogs at Ted's Jumbo Red Hots in Buffalo, New York. And March 11, 1808, the town of Clarence, New York, is officially established. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Thank you to the Buffalo History Museum for research and support. For WBFO News, I'm Tom Barich. Hello, I'm James Davis from Buffalo, New York. You're listening to WBFO News 
from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media, WBFO and WBFO HD1, Buffalo, WOLN, Olean, and WUBJ, Jamestown, your NPR station. <laughs>